This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Salmon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we finish the ninth chapter of Matthew, seeing a handful of stories where Jesus brings shalom to the chaos of others. Yes, sirree. Let's just keep motoring through. I don't know if this is going to be a short episode today or... I don't know. I don't know. I could use one of those. All right. Got well, a little bit of a sore throat going on, so... All right. Well, let's not waste any time and... Just jump right in, right where we left off. Matthew, what are we at? 918? Is that where we're at? Uh, yep. All right. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. All right. Great place for me to interrupt you right there. I have a couple of contextual details here that are going to help. Uh, first of all, she's touching the edge of his cloak, and sometimes we don't spend very much time talking about that. It's going to be a huge piece of context here. I remember when I was taught this story younger, like I always had this vision of like this woman coming, like kicking and throwing elbows and coming through the crowd, and then like she couldn't get to him, so she like dives, and as she's falling to the ground, like her fingertips grab the edge of his cloak at the, the fringe of his garment. But actually, there's a whole lot more context going on here because um, this is going to be a reference to the garment that Jesus is wearing. Today, we would call it like a, a prayer shawl. The word is talit in the Hebrew. Talit. Plural would be talitiot. And uh, it's the garment that Jews wore on the outside um, based on uh, Numbers 15. You have Numbers 15 for us, Brent? I sure do. All right, go ahead and read us the little... What, what's the verses? What address we got here? Uh, Numbers fifteen thirty-seven through 41. All right. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. All right, so God, I love the repetition at the end there. Like, I am God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I am God. I am God. Um, like, this is a big, this is a, um, this is a big moment. God's giving him the, God's giving his people a tactile, physical reminder of their identity and who they are. God says, when you see this, it will remind you not to chase after other gods, but to, um, to to serve me only, be obedient to me only. And so the phrase there is uh, to put zitziot on the kanafot of your talitiot. Tassels on the corners of your garments. Absolutely. Three words there. Zitzit is tassel. Kanaf means corner, or it can also mean wing. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, kanaf or wing. And then uh, talit is what we just talked about, the garment, the robe, uh, the garment. So put tassels on the corners of your garments. So NIV has garments in Numbers 15. They use cloak in okay. Matthew 9, uh-huh. but we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, and cloak isn't a bet because when you think cloak, you think of the outer garment, and this would typically be the outer garment. And so even in Jesus' day, a whole lot of debate about what exactly they were doing in Jesus' day. But in Jesus' day, they were putting tassels on that outer garment. Now, were they using what we know today as a prayer shawl? I think most scholars are starting to say they believe they were. A lot of evidence to suggest they're using more of a shawl than they would like a full-on robe cloak type of an idea. But uh, you have a picture that you're going to drop in the chapter marker here, I believe. And if they want to see some more, we're going to put a presentation in the show notes. Is that right? 
Correct. All right. So you can see a few pictures of a prayer shawl that I will use at something like a wedding. And that's just a big rectangular. I mean, one of the things that the rabbis had to wrestle with here um, was God said, put tassels on the what? The corners. Corners. Well, I have a big round robe. How do I put, how do I find the corners of a big circular garment? And so they needed corners. And so that's one of the reasons that they came up with this prayer shawl idea, a rectangular garment you're going to drape over yourself and that rectangle will have corners. So I can put tassels on those corners. And so you put these tassels on the corners of your garments. And even today, like I'm, I'm Jewish. So I wear zitziot underneath. It's actually the same idea. It's like a prayer shawl with a hole cut in the middle and I wear it like a sandwich board underneath my outer clothing. So instead of it being an outer piece of clothing, it's an undergarment piece of clothing. But I still have zitziot tassels. If you know me in person, you've seen me wear tassels everywhere. Um, and and that's what I'm wearing there is the zitziot on the kanafot of my talitiot. This will show up in your scriptures like occasionally in different stories. Uh, one story that I can think of that we've already passed in our study would have been in session two. I don't think we referenced it was um, David. Uh, he's in a cave being chased by Saul, Shaul. Shaul comes into the cave to relieve himself. After he's done, uh, while he's relieving himself, David, who has the opportunity to kill him, in fact, doesn't kill him. He spares Saul's life, but he does do what, Brent? Doesn't he cut off a piece of one of the tassels? Yeah, you know, he cuts off the corner of his robe. Now, we read that and we're like, oh, he just cut off a corner of his robe. But what we don't catch is what he just did was he just cut off his zizio. So Saul leaves that cave. He walks who knows how long. He starts reaching around like, where are my tassels at? And then Dave, this is why David is so racked with guilt, because that tassel symbolizes Saul's obedience. So he's cut off the tassel because he's trying to tell Saul in a very Eastern way, Saul, you are not being obedient. But at the same time, that tassel also represents God's wings and it represents God's protection. Like you're protected under my wings. And so this is why David comes out of the cave, like so racked with guilt. Who am I? Who am I to decide that Saul is no longer under God's protection, whether he's obedient or not? And that's why he feels so guilty. He's just cut off his zizio. Same kind of story here. This woman is pushing through the crowd. Um, and I love this. She has, a, she has an issue of bleeding. She's had it for 12 years. Now, it could be a lot of different things. I'm no doctor. I'm not going to act like one. But this issue of bleeding would have, according to Levitical law, made her unclean. This woman has not been allowed in assembly like she cannot, she could not have gone to the temple and worshipped in the temple assembly for the last twelve years. She could not be in a synagogue um, and celebrate and hear the words of the Lord from inside. Maybe she sat outside the synagogue listening through a window or trying to catch the echoes through a doorway. But this woman has been an outcast, an outsider, because of her physical condition. Condition and the and the and the book of Leviticus. This woman's a this woman is a, a mumser. And she comes um, pushing through the crowd, which to me, and there's a couple different things that this might not be the case. I'm not going to make any absolute statements here. She shouldn't be pushing through a crowd. Um, she may or may not be unclean depending on her condition. She is not fit for the assembly of the Lord, but she has some chutzpah here. Because if she is unclean, she is not supposed to be here. And she is not supposed to be doing this. And she should not be touching the garments of a rabbi. But this woman has some chutzpah. And, and she comes, she comes pushing through the crowd, and she gets up there, and she grabs his, the edge of his cloak, which is his zitziot. She she grabs his tassel, and the issue there. Why, why do you suppose she does that, Brent? I mean, it's a weird thing to do, right? So when in Numbers fifteen it says, 
you will remember to obey all my commands and be consecrated to your right. God. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So is she like trying to get at that consecration? Okay, could be. It's a good idea. Because what she's doing, like to to specifically go up and grab the zitziot, that is a, like, why not just go up and grab the rabbi? Why not ask the rabbi to heal you? Why not touch the rabbi? Why does it actually say she went and touched his zitziot? Why that specifically? Now you're already thinking it, but what is the process you're already doing, Brent? I ask you why she does something, and you're automatically thinking what? It's got to be in the text. It's got to be in the text. And that was an idea we've been introducing, and I want to kind of drum on it here in this episode a little bit, because everything that Jesus is doing is related to the text. Every teaching that he utters, we have to start asking ourselves, every time Jesus teaches something, every time Jesus says something, every time Jesus does something, it's a commentary on text. That's the way a rabbi works. A rabbi is not just a like a wisdom vending machine. He's not just wandering around commenting on the right kind of biblical morality to have. Jesus isn't wandering around just offering up brand new wisdom nuggets. Jesus is commenting on the holy scriptures, that holy text that they have and that they revere and they're trying to center their whole life around. And Jesus is everything he does is offering commentary on that book, on that text that they believe since the days of Babylon, when they started making synagogues, is so important. And remember, he's in the world of, what world is he a part of right now? Where what, Where is he at? Uh, is he up in the Galilee? Yeah, he's in that religious triangle. These are people that have centered their whole lives around the text. And he's, on his, he's going to be on his way to Capernaum, Capernaum, like Phariseeville, Harvard of the Pharisee world. Uh, these are people of the text. And so when Jesus does something, when people do something, it's often going to be tied to the text. Now, you're suggesting it's in the text. How about you read us Malachi, Brent? Give us Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Go ahead and read me that second, uh, uh, Malachi 4.2. Read that verse just one more time. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. With healing in its rays. And the NIV translates that in the only way that makes sense, but actually in a way that doesn't help us at all. Read it in the ESV. What does the ESV say? It's a little bit more true directly to the Hebrew. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will, shall rise with healing in its wings. In its wings. And there's that word kanaf, healing in its kanafot. And so there was, some would say, a radical legend for those Messianic people that were looking for a Messianic figure. And we've mentioned it before. That's not, that's not the common default. That's not what Judaism was all staying awake at night waiting for. But there were these... Messianic hopes. There was a radical, fundamentalist, fringe Jewish perspective that said there is coming a Messiah. There is coming a ruler. And one of the legends that was out there um, that was preserved in rabbinic thought and rabbinic teaching was when Messiah comes, according to Malachi, one of the ways that we will know that he is Messiah is that there will be healing in his kanafot. And so they said, will know because there will be healing in his talit, his pershal, his zitziot. And so this woman comes marching right up, grabs his zitziot because she believes that he's, he is Mashiach. 
Now, in Matthew, we're only given a couple verses, but the synoptic story is in Mark, and I believe you have that. What What is Jesus' response that's not in Matthew, but it is in Mark when she grabs his tassel? Uh, let's see here. So, so Jesus is on his way to heal the daughter. Uh, it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? Well, I love this part of the story, because if you've heard this part out of the Gospel of Mark, it's always like a weird interchange. Like she grabs the Zitziot, he he immediately starts turning around like, wait a minute, who touched me? He's walking through a crowd of people, and his disciples, and then he's like, I felt the power go out of me. <laughs> like, what kind of Star Wars voodoo is going on here, man? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Why is Jesus so adamant that he figures out, like, somehow he felt this healing take place. I don't know what that must be like to be Jesus or anybody else who does miraculous healings. But he feels this healing take place, and he immediately realizes somebody knows their what, Brent? Their text. Which, and maybe, maybe I've had people say, well, maybe she just knew the legend. Maybe she was just kind of like a fanatical believer that knew a legend. Okay, that's that's true. Maybe. I'm inspired by this story because it appears that this woman knows her text. And it appears that that's what gets Jesus' attention. Because he immediately says, somebody knows their Bible and somebody knows who I am. So who is it? And if it is because she knows her text, realize how hard has this woman had to have worked to have this text in her, to know this text that she's clinging to, to, that she is putting all of her hope in. Because she hasn't been to synagogue. She can't go to temple. Like, she has to have been unbelievably committed. And nobody's going to like go out of their way to help her. She's a woman. She, she's a woman not fit for the assembly, like in this culture. And yet she knows her Bible. And she just goes, who is this? Who was it that touched me? And then he finds her and he says, go ahead and finish that out. Uh, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, uh, so that was Mark. I don't know if you want me to read that. In that's good. How about we jump back to Matthew and, and just see and see that piece? Uh, so in Matthew, after after she touches his cloak, it says, Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. All right. So, so there's this, and, and I just want us to get used to these rabbinical interactions, because these rabbinical interactions are not just hurt people that need healing, a rabbi who's kind of smart, saying cool things. These are interactions that are based on and coming out of a deep-rooted belief in the text. And so um, just love that story, because there's so much context and text behind it that we typically don't understand when we learn that story, and it's very, very helpful. So and I think that's good. We can keep moving. There's more to talk about with that, but not for today. Okay, continuing on, Matthew 9. Uh, When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, 
He said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. All right. So who is this group standing outside? This is a group of mourners in their culture. Uh, again, context. Sometimes when you read this, you're like, wait, the girls died and there's people outside with like instruments and they're laughing. Like this, this feels like a weird mood here. But would, would they be laughing otherwise or were they just laughing at Jesus? Yeah, they would be. Yeah, they're, they're going to be mocking. It's going to be a mocking laughter at Jesus. These are, but these aren't going to typically be family. So in this Jewish culture, um, when somebody dies, you hire mourners to come in and these mourners are going to help you go through that one week period of mourning and one week period of grief. People usually in our culture kind of look down on that and go, how silly and how stupid you would pay people to come in and help you mourn. I've always actually been inspired by the practice because in our culture, we don't know how to grieve. Like we don't provide space for grieving. We don't know how to grieve. And in this culture, they actually had professional mourners who came in and they knew what songs to play. They knew what hymns to sing. They knew what prayers to pray. Their job was to help people negotiate grief. And so Jesus comes up to this house. The professional mourners are there. They're they're getting started doing their thing. And Jesus is like, no, 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 this story's not over. Go away. And they, they laugh at him. So go ahead. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Okay, now this is interesting. So he leaves that house where he just raised a dead girl, if I'm reading the passage correctly. And he le- and says news about him spread throughout all the region. So he leaves that region, he keeps going. And then these two guys, these two blind men are crying out, son of David, have mercy on us. And what does he do while they're crying out outside? He ducks inside. Yeah, he, he ducks inside. He goes, he doesn't address them. He goes inside and they follow him and then he has a private conversation. So he doesn't engage the public thing. He calls them inside and does a private thing, right? Okay, keep, keep reading. He asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. All right. Now, two, two, two words here. I spent a whole bunch of time today trying to figure out if there was some textual tie, because I've spent all this time telling you whenever Jesus opens his mouth, something's happening in the text. And I just haven't found a connection to this story on reference yet. May it be done to you according to your faith. I can't find any links there. I'm trying to think about two blind men that would have any links to this story. I just haven't found it yet. But mark my words, there's got to be, I bet there's something out there I just haven't run across yet. But raises another interesting question that we always have here, which is what, Brent? What about this story is so interesting to you or to maybe typical people? Uh, just there? It seems weird that he would warn them not to tell anyone. Absolutely. What did he do to the demoniac like just a couple chapters earlier? What did he tell him? He said, no, you can't come with me. You got to. You got to stay here and tell everybody what's going on. Go tell everybody. And now two chapters later, he's like, don't tell anyone. Like he's avoiding, he won't address them in public. He only addresses them in private. And and we wonder, people call this the messianic secret. Like what is it that drives messianic secret? I, I would argue almost 100% of the time it's location. Location, location, location. Where he's at is going to make all the difference in how he feels about spreading the word. When he's, where was he at with the demoniac story, Brent? Uh, he was in the Decapolis. The Decapolis. He's in the world of the pagans. 
And he's like, well, well, they're all about multiple gods and all that kind of stuff. They don't have all this entrappings of their self-righteousness and religion and devotion and all this stuff. So go tell everybody. Like, they can hear all about this Jewish rabbi that just came to the other side of the lake. That's not going to hurt anything. But when he's in the religious triangle, when he's surrounded by this Orthodox Jewish mentality that has all these um, just draped in all of this religiosity, he's like, this world is not ready for this. So don't don't go spreading word about this because this this needs to not we need to keep this in the family for now. This this world is not ready to process, which I just I find so interesting on so many levels that the people who know all about the text, the people who know all about God, I'm not talking about Judaism. I'm talking about all of my listeners who would say, oh, yeah, I'm a follower of God, of course. Like, it's that group of people in the story. It's the group of people that says, yeah, I know about God. I know about his word. I know about his Bible. It's that group that Jesus has to be like, they don't understand. So don't don't go saying anything because we got more work to do before we get to there. Now, of course, nobody ever obeys that. And everybody that gets told that runs off and tells everyone because I don't know, how can you not? Not giving them an excuse. I would probably want to do what Jesus told me to do or not to do, but they run off and tell anybody everywhere. Any, any, anyway, but... Nevertheless, I find that whole thing, the Messianic secret, very interesting to me. But go ahead. Onward. I'm trying to find a connection for you. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for a long time today. Could not find one. I'm like, did Son of David, like, did Solomon have an encounter with blind men? No, it doesn't seem like it. Well, and there's obviously a, there's definitely a tie for Son of David, for sure. Um, but is it a Ramez-type tie? Uh they're letting him know, we know who you are. We think you're Messiah. We think you're son of David. Uh, I don't know. There's there's something there. I just haven't, I just haven't put it together yet. So let's see. Second Samuel 5. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. So it's like Jesus subverting mm. the story of David where, where the blind are his enemies. Yeah. And Jesus says, no, I'll heal the blind. Right. So they can enter the palace. Right? Yeah. Interesting. A lot more work to do on that. Yeah. All right. Uh, if you're planning on editing that out, we might have to leave that in. No, there. I'll leave that in. All right. Nice. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, where are we at here? That's the kind of work you got to do, people. You got you to gotta check it out. Yeah. Um, let's see. Where did they go? Oh, yeah. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. All right. So again, you can see why this messianic secret is so important to Jesus. Like this worldview is going to have a hard time processing this. Even when they see the miracle, this is going to get distorted and contorted to Oh, no, no, no. This is demonic activity. It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is actually going to become something he has to deal with throughout the Gospels with this religious worldview, which wants to deny what God is doing through him by calling it something else. And Jesus is like, oh, we have to do so much other stuff. Why do we have to worry about? (laughs) Why do you have to be in the middle of this rather than I'm just trying to bring kingdom? I'm just trying to bring shalom to people's chaos. And this worldview is just fighting this movement that God is a part of. It doesn't really seem like Jesus is doing a very good job at hiding things, though. No. And I mean, that's the other thing about the kingdom, right? There is... could be a lack of detail here, but it's like they bring the demon-possessed man to Jesus. 
And then the next thing it says, and when the demon was driven out, like there wasn't, there wasn't like, Hey, do you want to do this? It's just, you bring him and then it happens. Right. And rabbinically it has to fit what he's wanting to do. Like this has to be a part of what Jesus is teaching about for his disciples, what he's trying to teach the crowds around him. Like this is a great moment. So I'm going to do this. And I've wondered sometimes if the Messianic secret isn't so much because of the miracle that he's afraid of people knowing about and seeing as much as it is about all the religious conversation that's going to go with it. Because these people were now, these people were unclean. These people were not fit for the assembly. These people are supposed to be on the outside. And now all of a sudden they're on the inside. And I wonder if the Messianic secret is not so much, don't let people know that I healed you, but this is going to cause a lot of waves because people were not expecting to let you in. And now all of a sudden they're going to have, like when Jesus, I can't remember if we've already talked about it here or if it's, it's, it's definitely later in the gospels and other gospels where Jesus will heal like lepers and he's going to tell them, go to the priest. I think, has he said that in Matthew already? I want to say we've already talked about where Jesus says, go give the offering, go talk to the priest, go do the thing that's required of you because now you're healed and now you need to honor that system that makes you fit for the assembly again. And so I wonder if in this triangle region of the Galilee, what's driving the Messianic secret is not so much keep my miracles hidden, because that's going to be a hard thing to do, but this is going to cause a whole lot of problems. So be very careful about who you tell and how you tell them. But I could be reading a lot into that. So to each his own. Well, there's there's definitely a lot going on here. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Verse 35. Jesus went through all of the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. All right, we'll close here with this paragraph today. Uh, The next story is going to take quite a bit of time to talk about, so we will not fit it in our podcast today. But um, we'll close here, and there's some good things to point out here I find so interesting. The crowds, he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them because they're like, what, Brent? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if I was a person of... Jewish Torah observance. Well, not Torah observance, but whatever I'm trying to say. If I was a Jew, what do I hear when I hear that? A sheep without a shepherd. Like, yeah. like we're not following, like God is not shepherding us. Okay, think some more. What else do I hear? Sheep without a shepherd. I mean, harassed and helpless. I mean, that, that feels about right. Can you <laughs> think of anything in the text? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I uh, I think of things like uh, there are a couple passages that jump out to me that will show up in Matthew some more. Um, this theme is going to be a theme for Matthew, that God's people are lacking shepherds. I think of like Ezekiel, I believe it's Ezekiel 34. Um, there's, a, there's a reference there to a condemnation of God's leaders, the priests, because they have not taken care of God's sheep. They are scattered all over the hillside. They are... I don't believe it uses the word harassed, but if you read the poem or if you read the prophecy, you'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, it talks about the shepherds actually eating the flock, taking advantage of the flock. Jeremiah, I believe Jeremiah 25, 24, 25, has a passage uh, about the shepherds of Israel and how they're failing God's flock. Like, And that's just the two big ones that jump off. But there are more, like I would even think about um, Micah and... He will shepherd his people 
and all just the different references and, and another reference in Jeremiah about God will be their shepherd because when they went off to Babylon, they were like sheep without a shepherd. There are so many references in the text. When Jesus looks out, he sees what the text describes in the Tanakh. He sees sheep without a shepherd. And I think the driving idea there is God's leaders, and in this case, it'd be the Pharisees, because we're not in Jerusalem with the Sadducees, not yet anyway. Here we're in the triangle. So God's religious leadership is failing his people because they they do have shepherds. They should have leaders. And yet this is like they are harassed and helpless because this dominating and I hate using words like legalistic because we're so quick to throw that around when we talk about Judaism as Christians, but this this miss like go back and listen to our our podcast on Pharisees, like this misappropriated religiosity, this misguided focus on obedience at the expense of compassion is making God's people like sheep without a shepherd. Did you pull up something there, Brent? Uh, this is harassed in the Septuagint. Okay. Any of these references mean Let's anything see to here. you? I'm going to look at these. Mm. In fact, can you uh, can you jump over to Ezekiel 34? Let's do some reading here. We got a few minutes to burn. Let's do some reading out of Ezekiel. Let's let's show when I say that things are in the text and people would think about text. I want to hear like if you have this stuff memorized. We've talked about that. This stuff is going to come to mind pretty quickly. So, do you have Ezekiel 34? Yep. Let's give it a whirl. Give it a read. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. Oh, what is Jesus doing right now? All those things. (laughs) It's all those things. Okay, keep going. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. You have ruled them harshly. Sounds like harassment to me. Harshly and brutally. So they were like, okay, go ahead. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth. And no one searched or looked for them. Okay, so that's good. That's a great place to stop. So when I go back now and I read this verse out of Matthew, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, there's a lot of like awesome context just because of the text on that verse. But I think that's important because of this last verse, which we're all super familiar with. And I've begun to wonder, I'm not sold. I'm asking the question. I've begun to wonder if we completely misread the next statement. So Jesus goes on. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, in our American Christian mindset, the way we've always used that verse, at least in my world where I was trained up in ministry, what does that verse mean, Brent? Uh, there's a lot of people who are ready to accept Jesus if you go out there and tell them about him. So what do we need? We need more we need evangelists. We need more evangelists. We need more preachers. We need more clergy. We need more, we need more workers. We need more workers. We need more workers. But I wonder if that's not at all. I was doing a bunch of remez work here. I was trying to figure out what is Jesus remezzing. And one thing I can tell you is that harvest. See, we connect harvest. What did you just connect the harvest to, Brent? To... Uh saving people. Yeah, like we just project all of this Christian evangelicalism onto the 
story, like the harvest as people that need to be saved, which I'm not sure that fits the context of what Jesus is talking about here. But harvest, biblically, harvest is not like all the unsaved. The harvest is God's blessing. The harvest is always a good thing in the text. Like the harvest is plentiful. I wonder if what, and the only place, well, I shouldn't say that, one of the only few places, and by few I mean less than a handful, and I'm trying to think if it was the only place, maybe you can jump on your computer and figure this out, Brent, the only place where I found workers and harvest together in the same immediate vicinity was the story of Ruth. The workers in the field getting the harvest. And the workers in that case are the workers gathering the harvest, but it's also the people that need to be, what was the book of Ruth about? It was about, why is Ruth there? Ruth is a, a worker, what, but why is she there? Is she there employed by Boaz or what was she doing? No, she didn't have anything. She didn't, so she didn't have anything. She's going to the to get whatever the leftovers are. Absolutely. Um, what did you find when you looked that up, Brent? Yeah, that's that's the only thing in English anyway. Yeah. So I I wonder, I wonder if what Jesus is saying is God has blessed us so much. The harvest is plentiful, but we don't have anybody out here gathering the plenty. I mean, that runs right on the heels of what he just said about the sheep being scattered and harassed. There are so many people here that need to be blessed. There are so many people here that need, and I don't know if it's so much a call for, hey, go get more people in Bible college or go get more people and get them prepared for ministry or go find more workers as much as it is, go find the people that need access to this harvest. I don't know. I'm wrestling with that, like literally today as I prepared for the podcast. The uh, workers word does not appear in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Right. Yeah, the Greek version there. There's a couple different, um, the root word shows up in a couple of its different forms. Actually, the root word shows up a ton of times, and then the different forms of that root word uh, show up in a few different ways, but not the same word that's used here. It doesn't show up at all in the Old Testament. Um, but yeah, so I, I just wonder, I wonder if Jesus's point here is actually more to the, we have so much and nobody's taking care of anybody. And so God's here to finally take care of the people that are being overlooked. Again, this agenda of Mumser that is so important to Matthew. And I wonder if all of this healing and all this is all gunning towards this last part here where Jesus says, there is a harvest and that harvest is not getting where it needs to get to. Um, or maybe we've been reading it right the whole time and there is a harvest of unsaved people. Either way, um, I just find these stories, especially with context, uh, to be fitting right along Matthew's agenda of the mumser, the kingdom of God, shalom to chaos. Same, same, same. And we're setting up our next discussion for our next podcast. I would definitely encourage listeners to go and read the entirety of Ezekiel 34 because the whole chapter is about the whole uh, thing. Israel's shepherd. Yeah. And I think it's Jeremiah 25, if I remember it correctly. It would be another passage that has a big chunk in there. Uh, you could read that. Prince looking it up to make sure. I think it's 25. I think there's a section there about shepherds. Got shepherds in there? Uh, yeah, there's a little chunk there towards, uh, let's see the last, last little chunk of the chapter. What does it there say? From, Read that to me. Weep and wail, you shepherds roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock for your time to be slaughtered has come. 
You will fall like the best of the rams. The shepherds will have nowhere to flee. The leaders of the flock, no place to escape. Hear the cry of the shepherds, the wailing of the leaders of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pasture. And I'm wondering if that even comes on the heels of maybe it was 24. I wonder if that's a conclusion to an earlier um, passage, even a chapter earlier, because it doesn't feel like the one I was wanting and looking for. Two baskets of figs. Yeah. Righteous branch, lying yeah. prophets. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Anyway, do a good word search on Jeremiah and find some shepherd talk because it's all over in there. We don't know our text well enough. Is that what you're saying? We need to know it better. But all of us need to know it better. And may that be a lesson to us. Even Brent and Marty sitting here, so much to learn, so much to keep. Oh, man. Yeah. We, we know it's there. We still have to do work to find it. Yep. So still have familiarity to, to grow in. But man, if I can impress that on this episode, the need to know that everything that we're reading about is going to be rooted in text somewhere, somehow. This is a text conversation. It's not just a crazy rabbi saying awesome things and healing people and doing miraculous deeds. It's it's rooted somewhere much more substantial, especially for his Jewish audience. So um, if we start thinking like that, we start asking a different set of questions. Not just what, what did Jesus do and what did Jesus say, but why did Jesus do and say those things? What is he commenting on? in the story that God's been telling. It's important. And it's a daunting amount of text to know, but we have some pretty incredible tools in. uh... Absolutely. And I got to tell you, I I got these emails. I got a few of these emails this week. I've only been doing this for 10 years, which is 10 years and I'm full-time ministry. So I get to do it more than the average Joe probably will be able to do it. But I, but I also don't spend all day studying either. I only spend a few hours a day. If that, like I spend one to two hours a day, in, in my scriptures and in study, maybe three or four on a good day, but I've only been doing that for 10 years. So all the stuff that you're hearing comes spilling out of me, it can, it can be done. Like, is this, like, this there, and, and it can be done in our world because of all the tools you just referenced. There are so many tools at my disposal. There are so many tools at your disposal. Uh, we, you can do this. Like, it's, it's doable. It's doable. Don't have to have a PhD. Almost everything we're talking about here is... At least what I'm talking about is stuff that I just searched on BibleGateway.com. Absolutely. Like as we were sitting here, half of it. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right. So that does it for this episode. Uh, If you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, any theories, uh, any remezes that you found, connections, whatever, uh, please get in touch with us. Uh, BaymontDiscipleship.com. We've got a contact form. You can email us there. Uh, You can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And uh, so thanks for joining us on the BMO podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.